of the first standards that was ever written was for screw threads. How do we standardize screw threads and the, and the holes that they go into? Because of course, if we all do it the same way, then we can trade screws internationally and that's all great. Welcome to the third episode of Words on Wood. My name is Christina Rapatsky and I'm one of your hosts. And that voice you just heard is Connie McDermott, Senior Fellow at the Environmental Change Institute at Oxford University's Centre for Tropical Forests. And I'm Ollie Stratford, your other host. Now, Christina, this is Words on Wood, but we're starting with a discussion about screw threads. Which are not made of wood, admittedly. We're not musings on metal. We're not, no. You see my confusion then. I do, but stick with it and all will be revealed. Now back to Connie. Over time, you know, certification started expanding into things like machines and toasters. You know, you want your toaster to not burn down, you know, your house down, you, you want it to toast evenly, etc. So you get it certified that it meets these technical standards. So certification is a way of providing a certain guarantee about a product, that it's been made in a certain way and that it meets certain internationally agreed upon standards. All good things. All good things indeed. But the question is, can standardisation be applied to all products and processes? Does what works for screw threads work for, you know, forest? <laughs> now that is very artfully brought round to the topic because the theme of this episode of the podcast is illegal logging. And I wanted to start us off with certification because as it stands it's one of the forestry industry's main responses to that very issue. Right but first I think we need to actually get clear on what illegal logging is because it's not as straightforward as most people commonly think. So to try and shed some light on this I spoke to Rupert Oliver a forest products consultant who's advised on the EU's Forest Law Enforcement Governance and Trade Programme, or if that's too much of a mouthful, you can call it FLEGTI. Illegal logging is is a hugely complicated business. I mean, it's not something that focuses just on a limited range of species or timbers. You have timber theft in, in certain regions, which could be driven by because the timber is very valuable and there's a very large export market for it. For example, this was the case with, with rosewood, which became tremendously valuable because of huge amount of demand in China, there was a lot of illegal logging in, in the Mekong Delta region, and more recently in Africa, to fulfil that market demand. So certainly that is that is an issue. But in other countries, a lot of it's to do with the fact that local communities, for example, they are dependent on their on their local forests. They might not have been consulted when the laws were, were first put together. So it can be everything from simple community lack of engagement in the in the legal process, all the way through to criminal gangs supplying high-value timbers to corrupt markets. There's also the fact that forestry laws in each country can vary very widely. It's so complex, in fact, that Rupert doesn't even think we should be using the phrase illegal logging. It's far too blunt uh, an instrument. I, that's why I, I prefer the sort of terminology that has evolved around the idea of, of, of good forest governance. And I don't see the work that we're doing is tackling illegal logging. It's much more about promoting good forest governance, which does involve consultation at every level in supplying countries, timber supplying countries and in forest-based countries. Now, this is where certification comes back in, because a lot of people have the idea that certification ensures this kind of good governance, that it's making sure that timber is being responsibly sourced and from sustainable sources, which it may be doing, more on that later, 
but it actually has quite a complicated history, which Connie sets out. There isn't actually one single route to what we call forest certification now. I think what people don't always realize is that just as the environmental concerns were a big part of, of certification in the early days, they were also absolutely combined with, with social issues. So Connie sets out that in the early 1990s, countries like the US and Canada began to feel concerned about intensifying forestry practices. In response, you have a number of early certification schemes popping up that try to preserve old growth forests but which were also concerned with the issues around the rights of indigenous communities in relation to those forests, as well as forest workers. It's interesting that that was growing in the 1990s, because that's also the time when international bodies start taking more of an active interest in this field. So in 1992, you have Rio de Janeiro hosting the Earth Summit, which was a UN conference that saw some of the important early international agreements around the environment. Right. It's a really important moment. It's also the time when bodies like the WWF and Greenpeace are getting very interested in these issues. Over time, you start to see, in broad terms, these two separate strands, so the community-based projects on one hand and the international agreements on the other, kind of beginning to come together. And then in 1993, we end up with the Forest Stewardship Council, or FSC, which is an international standard-setting organisation. Listeners will probably know their logo. It's that outline of a tree, which is also a tick. So there was this sort of merging of these grassroots movements with this international movement aimed at at addressing sort of international trade and large-scale forest loss. It's really important and it's helpful, I think, to realize this the complex history of certification because it helps explain that there are sort of different movements and different objectives in the same system, that different people got involved for different reasons And to this day, this has led to a lot of interesting um, (laughs) dynamics and struggles over what the priorities are, etc. I think I think that's healthy. It's a part of, you know, what happens when you when you try to do something that was really quite ambitious, really. Now, this is interesting and gets to the heart of some of the issues around certification of forests, because while we can all happily agree on a set way to standardise screw threads, it's much harder to do that for something like forests. Well, it's tremendously difficult. And I think, to be honest, I think a lot of the policymakers over the years have underestimated that complexity. They just thought it was a matter of getting countries to sign on the bottom line to agree a set of sustainability principles and then uh, get on with it. But of course, it's proved a lot more difficult because there are so many different interests, so many different parties engaged in the process, bearing in mind that forests still account for something like 40% of the world's uh, land area. Uh, There's a lot of different communities dependent on those forests. The forests themselves are tremendously complicated um, ecosystems. The management systems are very complicated. The tenure systems vary widely. Cultural attitudes to forests vary enormously. So there is no single solution to these problems and these issues in each country. Each country does have to evolve and develop its own strategy. So as environments go, forests are kind of the antithesis of standardisation. They thrive on difference. And to add to that, there isn't even just one certification body. Oh, you're kidding. I'm not. When the FSC launched in 1993, a lot of the industry were not necessarily best pleased. There were actually some tensions between the new certification and those at the coalface, so to speak. So battle lines started to be drawn up between those elements of the industry that were consumer-facing 
And then those which were not, the latter being the companies that were actually doing the logging, for example. Very broadly speaking, the consumer-facing companies and manufacturers were in favour of the FSC, while the logging companies began to work together and with various governments and put their weight behind a rival scheme, the Programme for Endorsement of Forest Certification Schemes, or PEFC. And I think one thing people don't realise is I think FSC um, has always sort of relied um on it being known by consumers and being known by retailers as, a, as something to, to specify, whereas PEFC had from the beginning kind of built in acceptance from the industry. So when you look at the certified area, there's actually still somewhat more PEFC certified area than FSC, even though a lot of people actually haven't heard of it. So you still have these competing schemes. I'm starting to feel a little confused. And I suspect our listeners may be too. I mean, I certainly was when Connie first walked me through this history, even though it's fairly recent. I think the important thing to remember is that you don't necessarily need to understand all of this or remember all of the acronyms. The core point is that certification, while it does exist with forests and forest products, isn't such a clear-cut thing as it was with screw threads or toasters. Another way of putting it is one of the fundamental challenges with standards and certification is that that there is no one vision of what forestry should be. So one of the challenges that, that certification faces is anyone in theory can start a certification scheme, and that's just layered on top of other certification schemes. Some people say, well, why don't we just have one happy label, one big label, and everybody just do the same thing? Well, I think what also hopefully becomes clear from all of this is that not everybody agrees on what that thing is. And so I actually think, again, it's healthy that there are more options than one. I think this lays at the core of this issue of illegal logging and certification. What exactly does it mean if a wood product is certified? So certification is voluntary. Is it a guarantee that the product is the result of legal logging? Does it mean that that product is sustainable? Rupert, for instance, is very sceptical that knowing that something is certified means that you also necessarily know it's been harvested sustainably. The way I see them is that they're useful tools for demonstrating sustainability, demonstrating good forest management where certain conditions apply, but they're certainly not universal and they're not the starting point for, for improving forest governance. All they do really is if you've already got a good system of governance, they are one mechanism to demonstrate that that's in place. What they don't do is actually implement and, and provide a, a framework for evolving the, the systems of governance in the first place. Right. And Connie actually raises similar issues around whether certified wood is necessarily legally sourced wood. These schemes, the FSC and PFC, are not designed to be some comprehensive legality auditing process. So in, in all the standards, the expectation is that the laws are being followed. And Connie has actually worked as an auditor, someone who assesses forest management according to agreed standards. So she knows what she's talking about here one thing to say you don't see any evidence of violating law and another thing to certify that every single law has been followed, which is a very hard thing to do. So they aren't generally recognized as some sort of proof of legality. One study where we compared forest laws around the world, you know, if you look at the U.S. Southeast where there's very little regulation of private forestry and compare that with Indonesia, which is probably the most complex system of forest laws anywhere, it can be almost impossible to really uh, guarantee that you've met every single law. So then you add on to that a bunch of certification standards and the costs of auditing. 
I think this is something Rupert would agree with too. When you're looking for certainty, that's not something that comes naturally to the forest. The licensing system requires you to trace wood all the way through the, the supply chain in countries which have got, often in, like Indonesia, they've got, they've got, it's spread over thousands of different islands. The industry's well distributed. It's a very fragmented industry, a lot of small operators. It's not big companies usually. It's a lot of communities, small operators selling into to smaller joinery shops or into small furniture manufacturing. Now, as previously mentioned, you don't need to remember every aspect of this. It gets super technical. But the key point is that certification, legality and sustainability are all different things. And one is not necessarily a guarantee of the others. Absolutely. And this is something that actually came up in another interview I conducted for this episode. I spoke to former Fantasma, which is a design studio run by Andrea Trimarchi and Simone Farisin. They're an Amsterdam-based practice and have become renowned for a series of research projects that trace material supply chains and some of the social and environmental issues that those supply chains throw up. So they previously looked into consumer electronics, for example, but in 2020, they launched Cambio, an exhibition at the Serpentine Galleries and research platform that looked into the global timber industry. It was a really fantastic exhibition. And I remember that one of the most interesting sections was a look at illegal logging. So they partnered with the Tunin Institute in Hamburg to analyse a number of wood products collected in the EU and to actually trace where the wood from those had been sourced from. So whether it had been sourced legally or illegally and whether the wood species named in the product declaration was actually accurate. Exactly. And I actually asked them about that. Here's Simone. We did this because the 30% of objects and materials enters European Union that are based on wood, they are coming from illegal sources. So they use maybe tropical species that are endangered and, and or simply from uh, protected species in the um, country that is exporting these, these objects. And my question in response to that was, what is actually meant by illegal in this case? This is a very good question. And it's, the, the answer is going to be pretty technical. We actually didn't come up with our own definition of what is legal or illegal, because we actually refer to legality in the definition of the European Union. And European Union, in the attempt to do not impose regulations to exporting countries, they ask these countries to come up with their own regulating uh, systems. On the other side, there is also a, already an existing document, which is uh, existing since ages, which is the CITES which is defining endangered uh, species, uh, and that is an agreement that is sort of a worldwide agreement. It was slipped in a little bit there, but that CITES document, which Simone mentioned, is really important. So CITES, or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, was signed in 1973 and came into effect in 1975. And it's the big international treaty that aims to regulate the international trade of endangered plants and animals. Now, there's plenty of discussion and critique around what is and isn't illegal, and also how that ties into sustainability and conservation, but it's important to know that it exists. So this means that if a country is deciding that a specimen is not in danger or it is possible to export it, it does not necessarily mean that it's sustainable as a, or that it's entirely, I would say, appropriate for the ecosystem. Now, all of this has painted a bit of a negative picture of certification, but it's also important to give it its due. It's not necessarily a bad system, it's just an incomplete one at present. And even if certification doesn't offer a complete assurance, 
Connie points out that it does give you something. You know, the word certification, you know, makes it sound like things, it's making something certain, but you know, there are no guarantees in this world. It is a kind of intermediary label that's trying to communicate something from one set of actors to another set of actors, and there are no guarantees. That said, if a company's going to have gone through all the trouble of getting certified and meet all those standards and everything else, it probably does reduce the risk that, that they're blatantly um, violating the laws. And I think if you buy a labeled product that has FSC or PFC label on it, most likely there is wood associated with that product that met the standards which are published online, which, you know, have a number of environmental, social and economic criteria. They've been subject to some kind of third party assessment. The company is making an effort. But one obvious question that comes from this is, what can we do that would improve the situation? What issues are there which at present are not being tackled by certification? And there's actually a clue there in what Connie just said. Connie mentioned that companies have to go through a lot to be certified and that it's an expensive process. So straight off the bat, it's a process that favours large, wealthy companies and countries over others. And this is something that Rupert actually complained about too. Well, the current certification, I mean, it's quite simple, really, in the sense that current certification focuses very much on individual foresters, forest operators, demonstrating that they're complying with a set of principles drawn up by the FSC or the PFC. A lot of the smaller operators, the small forest owners, they're, they're not certified because it's so difficult to, to, to they, they don't benefit from the economies of scale that you get with large operators. So a lot of them are actually excluded from markets because they do not actually have the the certification. It's led actually to a situation where certain operators, which are the larger ones, the the bigger industries, the multinationals actually, have been given a tremendous step up in these markets. Whereas a lot of the guys, the smaller guys, the community operators, the non-industrial operators, who in many people's minds probably better reflect what is genuine sustainability when you've got communities directly involved in managing their forests. These are the guys that are being excluded because of this rather simplistic approach. It's a familiar problem, I guess, in that it's a system that's been set up in such a way that it just works best for the biggest players. And on top of that, we should stress again, it favours certain countries too. So it's a system that tends to work better for wealthier countries in the global north. Now, we shouldn't pretend that we're going to be able to resolve that kind of deep inequity easily, but there are some suggestions for change that might make a difference. Rupert, for instance, thinks that problems arise from the fact that certification applies to particular forestry companies as opposed to forests as a whole. There's obviously a lot of ideas and there are solutions being put forward. And, and the, the, the one that I think has got the greatest amount of traction, which will also provide quite a lot of credibility, is if you use and rely a lot more on what I would call independent risk-based assessments, an independent assessment of the, of the whole forest resource, looking at all the data, you know, looking at the data on with very good quality data on on the quality of the forests, on the extent of the forest reestablishment, extent of growth and harvest, and looking at the the levels of illegal logging um, independently in in that region. And it's it's a lot cheaper, obviously, for individual operators. It means that the fact that there are a lot of small operators involved is actually part of the assurance, because if you've got a lot of small operators involved uh, and they have good quality land tenure and rail recognised land rights, they act like a uh, they act like a sort of neighbourhood watch and actually illegal logging is extremely rare in in that in that environment 
Now that's interesting that Rupert has focused on that idea because it seems quite driven by this notion of recognising that forests have multiple stakeholders, right? It's difficult to zero in on a single producer or company because they don't really exist in isolation. And you need to try to get this bigger picture of all the industries and communities that are interacting with that environment. I think that's spot on. However you do it, you need to try and connect those communities in order to get a fuller picture. Which is something that Connie is interested in too, although in a slightly different way. Yeah, so I mean, if we think about what we're really trying to achieve with all with certification and all these initiatives is you know i like to think of it as kind of re-socializing supply chains you know making it so that ideally i would say we know where our products are coming from and that we know that they're produced in a way that's environmentally socially responsible connie actually speaks about this in terms of an app something like this is obviously a way off but if you could use technology to help foster those links and connections between consumers and communities you might be onto something from early on, some of us would dream about the day, let's say you could have barcode on your on your product, you could scan the barcode, and it would tell you what forest it came from, what community. It would allow the community and the producer themselves to communicate all the really groovy, innovative things that they're doing. So it wouldn't just be comply with our standards, you know, surveillance and control kind of model. It would be actually incentivizing and recognizing good performance and building relationships across the supply chain. To me, there's way too much focus on how can we control people and try to get them to do what we want them to do, and not enough on how can we have bring everyone on board here and, and empower producers also to you know pursue different models. I think this is one of those essential questions over certification and illegal logging. How can you create international systems that are going to prevent unsustainable harvesting of forests, but in such a way that you're bringing everyone on board with you and which can also respect regional differences? Right, I think that's a really important point about regional differences because there's definitely all sorts of issues swirling around here that have to do with colonialism and its legacies. So this idea that you have a standard, usually formulated by Western countries, which gets applied to everyone else. And that's something both former Phantasma and Connie brought up. Yeah, Rupert too. It's one of the reasons he's enthusiastic about the EU's Flegti programme, because that's supposed to focus on individual countries establishing their own rules, rather than being bound by centrally agreed ones. It focuses very much on countries implementing the rules that they themselves have developed. It's about reforming the, the forest laws in the countries, getting stakeholders engaged. So there is no single solution to these problems and these issues in each country. Each country does have to evolve and develop its own strategy for sustainable use of its forests within a, an overarching set of principles, but underlying it, each country does have to develop its own set of principles. And they have to involve communities at every level. You know, for the people who live in the forest, they have to involve the, the different government departments, they have to involve industry, they have to involve civil society. And yes, I think that has been one of the biggest problems has been getting all those interests together to agree policies that they can all work towards and then to implement. Here's Simone from Forma Fantasma on that same issue. Certification schemes are, they came up, let's say bottom up, as a reaction to the fact that it was not possible to find a international agreement on the management of forests. 
due to obviously uh, many different interests. So for instance, what we call developing countries or the south of the world was really questioning the new ecological interests of Western countries because, of course, they could see that as a new form of colonialism. And, of course, countries like Brazil, they still want to own their own forests and, and possibly even exploit them, as we have been doing for centuries. So there is a lot of international tensions that are exactly what prevent the coming up of a real global ecological thinking for the forest. I think when you hear all of this, it's easy to feel a bit disheartened. These are really major challenges and they're not going to be solved overnight. But I don't necessarily know if we should feel totally discouraged. No, absolutely. Huge progress has been made since those early efforts in the 1990s. And I think the other thing to be encouraged by is the fact that people are now actually trying to grapple with the problem in its full complexity, including thinking about the legacies of colonialism and wealth disparity. And until you're talking about all of those things, you're not really addressing the issue in full. Right. I mean, we mustn't forget that screw threads began being standardised around the year 1800. And so forest certification, that's a relative youngster, a millennial basically, having started in the 90s. But we do understand if this leaves designers feeling a little apprehensive about the magnitude of all of these issues. There are actually small fixes and specific things that you can be mindful of, especially if you're a designer. That's a relief. Yeah, a former Phantasma brought this up. They explained that a lot of the digital modelling tools that designers and architects use, so CAD software and that kind of thing, they'll sometimes have material swatches programmed into them that include endangered species of wood. They, they impact our practice. And for instance, we look into how, for instance, uh, 3D rendering tools, they often have libraries of materials that expand also on, onto endangered species. And so for us, that's a way to say, this is perpetuating a way of considering uh, materials as surfaces. And also implicitly, we're also arguing that maybe these tools could be re redesigned and rethink to render other form of information than just surfaces. So quite aside from certification then, designers and architects can do their bit by properly researching their materials and not thinking about them simply as veneers or pure surface. Because the tools that we're using to design with are not going to do that thinking for us. No, evidently not. There's lots of work to be done, some huge shifts, but also some very specific things. On the whole, though, I'd say we're starting to move on from this idea that this is going to be a top-down fix. Everyone has to get involved. And on that point, I'm going to leave the last word to Connie. Do we want a world that is fully standardised? Do we want a world where, um, you know, everyone is... is watched by drones and, and, you know, overhead satellites um, and expected to comply? Or do we want a world where, you know, there's incentive to actually um, be creative and, and you know, and, and be a positive contribution to, to sustainability? I'm really interested more in how can we incentivize people to voluntarily cooperate and do better than that than I am in how can we make people stop doing things we don't like them doing, you know, without understanding, usually without understanding why they're doing it or, or what constraints they're under and everything else. This has been Words on Wood, a podcast about forestry and how it relates to design and architecture. This episode was produced and edited by Evie Hall, and the series has been supported by and made in collaboration with AHEC. In the next episode, we'll be looking at wood and its impact on human health and well-being. 